Hey, I'm Wes Moore, and this is Future City, a monthly conversation where we explore good ideas from around the world and look at how those innovations might work here in Baltimore. In the spring of 2019, Baltimore Mayor Catherine Pugh resigned amid the fallout of the Healthy Holly scandal, where she struck more than $800,000 in deals to sell copies of her self-published children's books. Although she'd lost the support of the city council, they had no power to remove her unless she was convicted of a crime. That incident led many to question the way the Baltimore city government is structured. Mayors of Baltimore have a lot of power relative to mayors in other cities because of our so-called strong mayoral system. And some on the city council are trying to change that through the charter amendments that would make major changes to how city government is run. Last month, the Baltimore City Council created a new committee called the Equity and Structure Committee, which is holding hearings on seven such charter amendments, including ones to reduce the number of votes needed to overturn a mayoral veto, one creating a city administrator position, and another allowing the council to remove the mayor with the approval of three-fourths of its members. If the council can pass the measure by August, they will move on to the mayor and then to the ballot in November. Today on the show, we explore the history of Baltimore city government and why it is set up the way that it is. We'll explore how governments in other cities are run differently and talk about the pros and the cons of city administrators and strong mayoral systems. And finally, we'll discuss how city governments are using data to drive policy and service delivery. Joining us to discuss why the history of the Baltimore City government looks the way that it does is Dr. Matthew Crenson. Dr. Crenson is Professor Emeritus and Academy Professor at the Johns Hopkins University Krieger School of Arts and Sciences, the Department of Political Science. He's also the author of Baltimore, A Political History, and in full disclosure, Dr. Crenson was the instructor of one of my favorite classes when I attended the Johns Hopkins <laughs> University. Dr. Crenson, thank you for joining us and thank you for being here today. Well, thank you for inviting me. And I was also your, your faculty advisor for a while. That's exactly right. <laughs> That's exactly right. So I am very, very grateful for the man that is, uh, that is sitting in front of me here. I did want to first by touching base on what I was talking about, about Baltimore's strong mayoral system. Right. Because people know that and they hear that. But what exactly does that mean, that Baltimore has a strong mayoral system? Well, there are a lot of cities, especially in the mid-Atlantic and northeast, that have what are called strong mayor governments, which means the mayor has a veto power, the mayor dominates the budget. But Baltimore's mayoral arrangements are extreme, even by those standards. They arose from a new charter that was drafted and passed in 1898. Some of its uh, provisions seem even strange. For example, the city council may cut the budget. But if they cut the budget and therefore save money, they're not allowed to transfer that money from one expenditure item to another. It has to go back to the mayor who, if he or she wishes, can propose a supplemental appropriation bill. If the council wants to override a veto of the mayor, it requires three-quarters of the council to do that instead of two-thirds as in Congress. Mm. So there are a lot of respects in which mayors are very, very powerful with respect to the council. And perhaps the most important instrument of mayoral control is the Board of Estimates, which includes the mayor, the city council president, the controller, the city solicitor, and the director of public works. They make up the budget. The council does not propose the budget. And since the mayor appoints the director of public works and the city solicitor, the mayor has three votes out of the five, and so the mayor essentially controls the show. But it has not always been that way in the city of Baltimore. For a long time, the council was the the locus of control. They made the budget. They proposed the legislation. They could more easily override mayoral vetoes if there were vetoes. 
But in 1897, uh, something rather strange happened. Uh, Republicans uh, were in control of both the mayor's office and the city council. There had been a landslide reversal of Democratic predominance in 1895. Mm-hmm. The new mayor was named Alcas Hooper. He wasn't a professional politician. He was a businessman. He owned a textile mill in Woodbury, which had just recently become a part of the city in 1888. And although the council was Republican and the mayor was Republican, they were at odds with one another. They couldn't agree on anything. The mayor wanted, Mayor Cooper wanted efficiency and expenditure control. The council members wanted patronage and favors. Mm. And they couldn't get anything done. So the subsequent mayor, uh, William Molster, in order to get around these problems, appointed a Blue Ribbon Charter Review Commission, which included uh, two previous mayors, Ferdinand Latrobe and Pinckney White, and the president of Johns Hopkins University, Daniel Coit Gilman. They came up with a document that gave the mayor this overwhelming power that I was talking about a little while ago and put the mayor at the center of city government, at least with respect to the council. So although the mayor was powerful with respect to the council, the mayor was not necessarily powerful with respect to the local business community or, more important, the state. So you have a strong mayor with respect to the council, but not necessarily a strong municipal government. It's fascinating when you think about what that means is, uh, you know, with that level of consolidation, there's the the pros that this is a person who can actually get things done quickly. Mm-hmm. The cons of it is if you're not on the right side of this person, there's not much that's going to happen to your benefit. That's right. And the council's authority is extremely limited, the ability to initiate legislation and especially the budget, which controls everything. And in view of that, the current council uh, has proposed a series of charter amendments, as you mentioned, in response to the sorry episode of Mayor Pugh, but I think more generally in an attempt to redress the balance of power between the mayor and the council in some rather drastic ways as well. For example, as you pointed out earlier, the council found itself unable to remove Catherine Pugh from the mayor's office, even though she seemed to be in serious trouble, because under state law, she would have to be convicted of a felony or a misdemeanor uh, connected to her official duties before she would be moved from office. Of course, she hadn't been convicted of anything. So what they've now proposed is that three-quarters of the council can remove any elected public official in city government, not just when convicted of a felony or a misdemeanor, but when the council judges them to be engaged in willful neglect of duty or incompetence, which can be virtually anything. So this is a drastic shift of power. It means that the council, three-quarters of them in any case, have the power to remove just about anybody they want in city government. But but even these proposals and these proposed changes, they don't come from nowhere. They're still modeled after other cities and jurisdictions that have similar type of proposals. Well, they are, but uh, they go a little further. For example, the counties, most of the counties in, in in the state, say that an official can be removed from office on conviction of a felony or if incapacitated, unable to perform the duties Mm -hmm. of office for 180 days. Those are very limited kinds of powers. This one stretches a a good deal further. Uh, There's still a concern that there be the ability to get stuff done in city government. And to that end, 
One of the charter amendments proposed by the council would have a city administrator appointed, somebody, not quite a city manager, but somebody who'd take care of the day-to-day business of the city, oversee the whole business, including budgets. Many cities that have strong mayor governments have decided to do this because the mayor may not be expert at financial management or administration. The one thing that makes this different is that if the mayor decides that he or she wants to remove the city administrator, that decision has to be ratified by the city council, Hmm. which means that if the city council refuses, uh, the mayor winds up with a city administrator that he or she doesn't get along with at all. In fact, somebody they've tried to fire. I mean, it's, it's, and it's a fascinating dynamic, right? Because I think one thing we've learned, and this is not even just a municipal conversation, right. this is a statewide conversation, mm-hmm. a federal conversation, where we don't expect our leaders to be masters at everything. Right. Right. We expect them to be competent and, you know, have integrity mm-hmm. on everything. Yeah. But one of the main things we look to them to do is surround themselves with the kind right. of team. Mm-hmm. that can make sure that there is excellence at every department and excellence at every level, even if that's not their expertise. Right. That their job is to put really good people in places and then hold them, have very high standards right. and hold them to account. One person who you talked about in Baltimore and talk about frequently is Mayor William Donald Schaefer. Right. And where everybody knew that Mayor Schaefer was not one who was going to break down the budget no. uh, into its finite levels. Everyone knew that Mayor Schaefer wasn't the person going around filling potholes and and, 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 uh, and cleaning streets, he was just going to make sure that the person who was in charge exactly. of that was held to account. Can you talk a little bit about that process and, and, and the role that he played in having and almost psychologically shaping the way the city yeah. thought about this role? He was probably one of the most detail-oriented mayors we've ever had. He also had multiple cabinets at the top of the bureaucracy to force bureaucrats to sort of police one another, uh, and he would get to see the inside of the But he also set up a, a bunch of mayor's stations down at the bottom where he had neighborhood constituencies. So he was trying to control the bureaucracy from both the top and the bottom. Hmm. Control was sort of an obsession with him. And in that respect, it made him a very powerful mayor, one who fully exploited all of those authorities that he had within the scope of the the city charter. But he also did something else that made his achievements perhaps seem bigger than they were. He avoided the tough problems. For example, public education. He put that on one side. In fact, expenditures for public education in inflation-adjusted terms declined by about 20% while he was in office. Hmm. He concentrated on bricks and mortar projects like Harbor Place, where The problem was really fairly simple. I mean, there were political obstacles to get around. Some people didn't want Harbor Place, for example. But the actual building of Harbor Place was not nearly as complicated or as mysterious as how you educate kids from low-income, single-parent families uh, in a big city. So you talk about how he decided which things that he wanted Mm -hmm. to own, which things that he did not want to own, which thing he's going to prioritize, which thing he was going to share with the state. And we still, to this day, have a very complicated relationship with certain major entities within the city. For example, uh, the way we still, to this day, still share a public education right. conversation mm-hmm. in terms of budgeting, in terms of you know the fact that we have people in Hartford County mm-hmm. who have accountability and say as to how we're thinking about budget allocation for students who are going to 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 Carver or to yeah. Western or mm-hmm. to or, mm-hmm. or to Poly. 
the fact that we share a police department. Exactly. Accountability. These are major, major functions, Mm -hmm. how we educate our children, how we police our our neighborhoods, that we have a state that also has very Mm -hmm. real say and accountability as to how those budget allocations are going. Why do we have those type of systems? That's a long story, and it goes back at least a couple hundred years. From the very beginning, uh, Baltimore was in a disadvantaged position because it came into being uh, almost 100 years after the first British colonists arrived in Maryland. And so by the time Baltimore came along, there was already an entrenched political establishment in Annapolis, uh, which was not about to make any sweeping grants of authority to some upstart village on the Patapsco. Mm. Uh, least of all, an upstart village that did not include a lot of tobacco planters. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so uh, they imposed the government on Baltimore. It was not elected by the, the seven commissioners that were the original, were not elected by Baltimoreans. And then having imposed this government, they gave it almost no power to govern. The only thing you could do was have this, the city or the town surveyed into lots, sell the lots, and then meet once a year. Uh, strictly for the purpose of making sure that the lot boundaries had been maintained. Everything else they needed to do, they had to go to Annapolis to get. Mm. That, and there's a sense in which the the origin of a city becomes part of its destiny. And this pattern continued over the years. For example, you mentioned the police department. That happened in 1860. It was after John Brown's raid mm. uh, in Harpers Ferry when... Uh, the state, which had been Whig mostly, shifted Democratic in a very pronounced way, except for the city, which was dominated by know-nothings, <laughs> which included the police department. Uh, the police department at that time, the three police commissioners, also controlled the administration of elections, which was critically important. And so in 1860, not trusting the know-nothings, and with some reason not trusting the know-nothings to run fair elections or elections that would elect Democrats, the state legislature took over the police department. They put it in state government. This is a pattern that's been accumulating over time. Mayor Schmoke needed money for education. In order to get it, he had to compromise with the governor and give the state some share in decision-making about the appointment of the school superintendent or the CEO, uh, the school board, the uh, kinds of budgeting rules and management rules that they would follow. So the state has been a dominant presence in the city of Baltimore since the very beginning. When you think about where Baltimore is right now, that relationship, there's almost a highlighting of how complicated that relationship is. Because when we think about the structural challenges that the city continues to face, budgetary structural challenges, operating structural challenges, there's also a complete interdependence yeah. that then takes place where the state needs a strong Baltimore. Right. And at the same time, the, the city needs a compassionate state. Mm-hmm. How are we navigating that relationship right now? And how much does it complicate the current situation of Baltimore City? How much does that complicate this conversation and this narrative that then has to take place in order for us to think about what, we're, what it's going to look like going forward? Yeah. The relationship now has been pretty rocky for some time. Yeah. We know, for example, that Governor Hogan has not always looked favorably on uh, projects that benefit the city. He controls, the state controls some major city institutions. It controls the transit, public transit in the city. It controls the Port of Baltimore, even the Liquor Board. All of that is under state control. It makes for a very difficult task to 
not just to govern Baltimore from within, but to deal with some of its problems. For example, one that I looked at carefully is uh, one neighborhood, Sandtown. Sandtown has one of the longest commuter times of any neighborhood in the city. What that means is that when somebody in Sandtown, which is a neighborhood with very high unemployment and high poverty rate, when somebody in Sandtown gets a job, one of the first things they do is move out of the neighborhood so they can get to where they're working. Of course, the governor's cancellation of the red line would have given that neighborhood access to jobs on both the east and west side of the city, Social Security Administration, Johns Hopkins Hospital. That's a place where the state could have made a real benefit to the city Mm -hmm. and its economy, and they didn't pony up. Um, And that happens. State office building development project, another one, seems to be just on ice right now. Mm -hmm. A whole range of things. The the local prisons, uh, the uh, detention center, for example, was closed with no warning to the city. Uh, now, uh, I understand prisoners are incarcerated some distance away from the city. Their relatives and their lawyers have trouble getting to them. Yes. So there are a whole bunch of problems that have to do with the lack of coordination or at least lack of cooperation between the state and the city. So when we're having charter conversations mm-hmm. right now about strong mayor, weak mayor, city administrator, all these potential proposals mm-hmm. that are then on the table, how much will it matter if we do not better our relationship with the state? Uh, It's a great point. We have a strong mayor government. It's a strong mayor in relation to the city council. Doesn't necessarily mean a strong mayor in relation to anybody else, particularly the state. So we're going to have to come to terms with the state, and the state's going to have to come to terms with Baltimore. It can't afford to have a poverty-stricken Baltimore with lots of unemployment. It's going to take more than charter amendments uh, to achieve that. Um, and actually, under the, the state constitution, the city can, can uh, change the charter on its own hook with its own voters only if they don't give the city any new powers with respect to the state. So this charter amendment process operates within a very restricted area. They can't get any, the city can't arrogate to itself any new powers under this amendment process. I've been speaking with Dr. Matthew Crenson, the professor emeritus and academy professor at the Johns Hopkins University School of Arts and Science, Department of Political Science. He is also the author of Baltimore, A Political History. Dr. Crenson, as always, it is so good to see you, and thank you for joining us. Wonderful to see you again. Thank you. We have to take a brief break, but do not go away, because when we come back, we'll explore the question of just how much of a difference a city government structure actually makes. That's just after the break. Here are Future City on WYPR. Future City is made possible by McCormick & Company, a global flavor company helping teach kids and families in Baltimore how to replace salt, sugar, and fat with healthy flavors through their Flavor for Life program. More information can be found at McCormickCorporation.com. Welcome back. I'm Wes Moore, and you're listening to Future City here on WYPR, the show where we ask, what's next for the city of Baltimore? Today, we're exploring Baltimore city government and efforts to reform it. The council is currently considering charter amendments to change how the city government is structured. One is a proposal to establish a city administrator. 
Joining us to discuss what a city administrator system means and how it compares to a strong mayoral system is Chris Warshaw. Chris is an assistant professor of political science at the George Washington University, and he's joining us from NPR in D.C. Dr. Warshaw, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on. I'm excited to be here. So I wanted to ask you a question about what exactly is a city administrator system and how it differs from other forms of municipal government. People hear that, and I think it it almost is this ubiquitous term. But what exactly is a city administrator system and how it differs from the other forms that we have of city government? Well, it's commonly called a city manager system. And generally the way it works is the city council will appoint a professional administrator or manager who would then be the chief executive of the administrative departments of the city. Uh, Whereas in a strong mayor system, the voters elect a mayor, and then that mayor is the chief executive officer of all of the departments and administrative offices of the city. A couple important differences relative to a a mayor system. Typically, the the administrator will be more professional uh, than the mayor. You know, they'll have more experience managing a large bureaucracy. And they may be better able to sort of build the confidence of their staff than a mayor is. But on the other hand, an administrator isn't directly accountable to voters in the way that a mayor is. I think that in a system where you where voters directly elect the chief executive, which is typically the way most U.S. elections work, if the chief executive doesn't perform well, then voters can toss them out in the next election. Um, whereas the accountability for an administrator is much more indirect. So where does the accountability from the administrator come from? Well, it would usually come from the city council, um, since they're typically the ones that would hire them. And I don't know what the proposal is in Baltimore. So typically, if the administrator performed badly, then the the city council could still fire them. But voters would not directly be able to hold them accountable to the ballot box. I think one of the fascinating things about this to me is some of these decisions are remarkably difficult. And there is an argument to be made that it's actually better to have the constituents and the people's accountability measures in place, right? So if a person makes a really hard decision, it should happen with the context of my constituents will be able to either tell me in one year, two years, three years, four years, whatever the time period might be, whether or not they approve of the job I'm doing and then decide what they want to do with me. At the same time, there's another real argument to be made that some of these decisions are so complicated and are so difficult that you actually want them out of the hands of people where there is that direct measure of accountability because the decision that people will land on might be more complicated if they know that there are political implications or political ramifications for the decisions. How have cities historically gone through the process of deciding how they want to frame their government with that as an underlying thought? Well, the history of the council manager system is that originally it was established by reformers in the early 20th century. And it was really designed to take power away from sort of party machinery and put it in the hands of, you know, nonpartisan, competent administrators. It was mostly established in Western and Midwestern cities. Most East Coast cities have strong mayor systems like Baltimore. Mm -hmm. But I think going back to your question about accountability, the sort of foundation of the question, I think the tricky thing about accountability in local government is that in order to hold elected officials and candidates accountable, I think there's two sort of prerequisites for that, both of which are increasingly scarce. One is that voters have to know something about the not just the performance of government, but like who's responsible for it. And one of the challenges for that is that with the decline of the local media, um, you know, fewer and fewer people are reading local newspapers, watching local television. 
So they just don't have as much information as they used to about the performance of local government. And then I think the other challenge is that increasingly elections are nationalized based on people's views of the national parties. Mm. So that a Democrat in Baltimore may vote for the a Democrat for city council or, or mayor because they don't like Donald Trump or they don't like what the Republicans are doing in Congress. But that voting behavior, of course, has like essentially nothing to do with what the local government's doing. And I don't think that's true for everyone, but I think that's true for a lot of voters. So both of those, I think, at least arguably, lead to diminished incentives and diminished accountability for local elected officials. And so when we think about how it actually works in terms of the practical nature on people's lives, explain what that transition has looked like for other recent examples of transitioning from a strong mayoral system to one where it is more of a city manager or vice versa. How have cities transitioned in these kind of frameworks? Well, say we don't have great evidence on transitions because typically when cities um, establish a form of government, they typically keep the same form of government for a long time. Hmm. So we don't have a lot of data of recent cities that have transitioned. But I can tell you what the general research looks like in this area. And I think that all these findings are a little tenuous because we don't observe very many of these transitions. But in general, the research suggests that cities that have council manager systems tend to have staff that are a little bit happier. They tend to do a little bit more innovative policies, perhaps. And I think people on the whole are a little bit more satisfied with the performance of local government. But on the flip side, voter turnout in local elections goes way down, turning back to sort of the, maybe the accountability point. And that's because it's really the mayoral elections that are like driving voters to the polls. You know, most voters have like no idea who their city councilor is, and that's not really motivating people to go to the polls. So if you take away the mayoral election, a lot fewer people vote. Now, one thing I want to ask a question about, you just said their staffs are happier. What exactly does that mean? And how does that then correlate to what the city is then getting and expecting and understanding of that form of government? Well, again, I think our, our, we don't have great data points on this, but the research that we do have indicates that in surveys of local officials, they tend to be, as I said, a little more happy with managers than mayors. Hmm. And I think that logically that's been part because the administrators are just sort of better, probably surely better managers, but also they're sort of probably by training and inclination, they're more bureaucrats, whereas mayors are, you know, largely catering to a political audience and probably executive leadership is not their strong suit in most cases. Mm-hmm. And you've also conducted some research that talks about whether or not these, uh, whether it's a strong mayor or a weak mayor or no mayor that you you know put in terms of policy, it may not matter much. And your study casts doubts on the idea that it, you know simple institutional reforms can significantly improve a city government's responsiveness. What do you think are the most important factors here? Some of the background in our study is that in a democracy, I think one of the most important metrics for measure for examining the performance of a democracy is saying, are the policies that a government passes responsive to the views of its citizens? So in terms of municipal government, do places like Baltimore that have more liberal constituents, more liberal citizens, are they more likely to pass liberal policies? And there we found the answer is a resounding yes. Cities like Baltimore, which have very liberal publics, spend much more money than conservative cities in the West or the the South do. And I think that there's a lot of explanations for that, but clearly one of them is that elections are doing the, the job they're supposed to do, and they're electing elected officials that then, at a broad level at least, listen to their constituents. So that was the good news in our study. The bad news was that really no institution seems to substantially improve representation in municipal government. 
And that includes both the differences between council manager and strong mayor systems, but other reforms like the establishment of nonpartisan elections, uh, which some reformers have argued might improve uh, the performance of local government. So I think that, you know, really simple institutional reforms probably aren't going to improve representation. They might improve the performance of government. And I said, the, you know, the, I think the evidence is a little bit tenuous, but at least there's some reason to believe that the council manager system might lead to a, a somewhat better performing government. And maybe some reassurance would be that it probably wouldn't um, affect responsiveness or representation in any significant way. So when you think about a, a city that is a deeply one-party system, part of then your argument is that the deeply one party uh, is not just something where people say, well, that that only matters in uh, in, in, in presidential years or that only matters in, in things when it's like statewide elections. That part of the argument is actually, no, it matters because it helps to determine which policies, almost regardless of the structure, but exactly. which policies that the that the constituents are actually going to yearn for. Exactly. I mean, a place like Baltimore, the government is overwhelmingly, if not, I think, universally Democrats in terms of its elected officials. And we know that Democratic elected officials tend to take pretty liberal policy positions. And so, too, in Baltimore, I think the elected officials have typically taken pretty liberal policy positions. And that's led the city government to spend more and tax more and, and in general establish more liberal policies than more conservative cities. And my final question then is is how you're then thinking about some of the other places that Baltimore should be paying attention to. Where are some places that you have seen that in terms of the uh, uh, looking at a form of either a shared form um, of flow or something where you do have a, uh, have, have, a, have a strong mayor that you think are either really good examples or either really cautionary tales? Well, I think that the best evidence we have on what it is that would improve the performance of local governments is really having a vibrant local media and having a conversation that engages the mass public in the workings of city government. Because I think that incentivizes elected officials to improve the performance of government. Whereas if you know nobody's really paying attention or the local media isn't covering it or maybe nobody's reading the local media, I think it's really hard to get people involved in local government, and then you tend to have real performance issues. So I think that the, you know, the best normative advice I would have is that the more the local media can cover the link between local government and some of the issues that Baltimore has had, and then local community organizing groups can work to get people involved in the workings of local government, I think the better off the city will be. I've been speaking with Christopher Warshaw. He's the assistant professor of political science at George Washington University. Dr. Warshaw, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. You're listening to Future City here on WYPR. We have to take a brief break, but do not go away, because when we come back, we'll learn more about the Baltimore and Pittsburgh city governments and how they're using data to shape how they interact with city residents. Welcome back. I'm Wes Moore, and you're listening to Future City here on WYPR, the show where we ask, what's next for Baltimore? Today, we're talking about the Baltimore city government in the aftermath of an ethics scandal that led to the former Baltimore mayor, Catherine Pugh's resignation. The Baltimore City Council is considering charter amendments that would change how the city is run. 
Earlier, we heard about the history of Baltimore City Hall and how Baltimore developed a strong mayor system. Then we found out how city administrator systems compare with other forms of municipal government. Now, we're going to bring the focus back here to Baltimore, and I'm thrilled to have our next guest, Beth Blower, joining us. She's the executive director and the founder of the Center for Government Excellence at Johns Hopkins University, also known as GovX. She also ran Maryland's former state stat program and has designed and launched Socrata's online platform of federal, state, and local governments, GovStat. Beth, my friend, welcome to Future City. Thanks for being here. Oh, so great to be here. Thanks for having me. So in your work, you focus on bringing data into decision making and into the process of how governments are using that information to be able to make the best decisions on behalf of their constituents. I am a data nerd. I love this stuff. And I love how you can take data and use it and incorporate it into how people are thinking about the world and think about the decisions that need to be made. But for people that might not be data nerds, What exactly does that mean of taking data and being able to use it to process decisions that people should be making? So what it means is that when you're trying to make the hard decisions that are required for running a city or any government, honestly, you're not just doing that based on sort of your gut instincts or your intuition, but you're looking at a whole body of work. Your gut instincts and your intuition and all those anecdotal Um, inferences that you make from the exchange of information are really important. But the reality is, is that you also have to have a body of evidence data, looking at these sort of individual evidence points to actually sort of proof out whether or not those intuitive responses to the data are accurate. Because sometimes we bring in our own perception into problem solving and to thinking about the sort of really difficult problems that governments are forced to face. And we come with all kinds of bias. You know, we come with all kinds of preconceived notions on what is right, what is wrong, what's driving certain things. And if you're not actually sort of reflecting back into the reality of the situation, and we talk about the reality, I think about data as bringing that capacity of reality into conversations and decisions. So you may think that all your 911 calls are coming from a particular community or from a particular type of constituent. But until you actually dig into the data to really understand that, you don't really have the ability to say, I need to deploy different kinds of capital into the community. I need to think about different services that 911 can provide. And the data just helps you understand whether or not you're making the right decision in the way that you're resourcing that particular problem. And when you think about the way that, that municipalities and governments are using data now, it's a pretty elastic band. Right. When we think about the ones that are doing it really, really well and the ones who are still, uh, you know, you know, very archaic in the way that they think about data and processing their information to use it to to make better decisions uh, on behalf of their constituents. What are some of the things that you think governments can do to particularly for the ones who are a little bit further behind on this scale to be able to speed up and accelerate how they can actually make data driven and heart led decisions? in the way they're allocating budget and in the way they're thinking about prioritization. So the first thing that government should be doing, and we've worked with, you know, over 150 governments doing, and it it is not exciting, and it's oftentimes not the thing that the political leader really wants to invest a lot of time and energy in, but it's just figuring out what data you have. Government produces tons and tons of data. And they typically don't even realize how much they have. So one of the first things that we do when we go into a city to do this work is just say, hey, 
let's wrap our arms around what we already have. We don't need to buy fancy technology products that will produce new data. We just need to inventory what we do have. What are the systems that we have invested in already that are collecting information and data? How good is that data? What does it tell us? Does it have some value that isn't what it was necessarily designed to do? So, like, does the automatic vehicle location data from a bus, that actually is, like, a great public health data point where you can actually take that data and say, do people live close enough to providers? Do people have access to the right kinds of health care? If we can start just wrapping our arms around what's available and exposing it even just to our internal government partners, I think that there's so much that we can do that we're not doing. And there is so much potential in just what we've already invested in. And then we can identify the areas where we think we need to grow and think about an acceleration. But just doing the sort of fundamental governance and inventorying of data is one of the most useful things that a government can do. And it seems like one of the places that you talk about and you highlight that's actually done a pretty good job of this is Pittsburgh and their level of coordination. What makes them so special? It started with a really strong mayor. You know, Mayor Peduto came in and really commanded that his city agencies make those linkages between Allegheny County Social Services and to the state of Pennsylvania. And with one key focus, which is I want the people to be able to live the lives they want to live. And we want to be able to support them in the best way possible. And so they started creating, you know, a shared data framework between the agencies that were responsible for providing those safety net services to families. And they've been able to also scale that to a a number of other areas where they're using data in really smart ways to think about economic development, what communities need small business growth so that they can stabilize economies. And as the coordination has grown, crime has fallen. The green shoots of progress in neighborhoods that were largely divested of are starting to emerge. And the city, you know, has really had a rebirth in the last decade. Um, And a lot of it's credited to being really strong, managed well, with a real focus on people being able to thrive in the city. The very first thing you mentioned when you talk about what has been going right in Pittsburgh was a strong mayor. Do we see the same thing in cities that do not have strong mayors? Do we see the same thing in cities that don't have, that don't, don't have strong mayoral structures or have uh, city administrators? How important is the mayor in this? Or is it just making sure that you have someone who is a good leader who's sitting there, regardless of name, regardless of structure? What are the things that you see? And have you seen scenarios where there has not been a strong mayor, but it still worked pretty well? Look, you know, the further you go west in this country, the more prevalent the sort of strong city manager cities are and the mayors get sort of weaker and weaker. And we've seen tremendous examples of great partnerships between a mayor and a city manager in a place where there's been diffuse sort of power structures and where you have a weak mayor system versus strong mayor system. There is something about having a strong mayor who can pull levers that just a city manager would never be able to pull in terms of just like swift decision making, being able to respond to things in ways that get right to the root of issues. But then there are places like, you know, I think about Sly James in Kansas City, Missouri. I think Sly is one of the most prominent mayors that we have or had. He's been uh, he just cycled out of his um, uh, work there in Kansas City. But he wasn't intimidated by the notion of a a weak mayor system. And he took the bull by the proverbial horn. And he just said, I'm going to help 
buoy the efforts of the city. I'm going to work in with the city manager in a way that's going to enable data, think about performance management in real ways. I'm going to own this part of the administration of the city, and I'm going to make sure that everyone understands that this is a critical issue for the city and we're going to use it and that the community is part of it. So when he was in Kansas City, every single priority was identified through very rigorous surveys of the community. There was great engagement model. They had a very transparent um, data and performance program. They were regionalizing it. So they're working with Kansas City, Kansas, and they were working with the county and they're working with the state. And he was leading that work because he had a kind of narrow focus as a weak mayor, but he took that little bit that he had and he ran with it. So I do think it's a little bit of it. It depends on the individual, but a lot of it also depends on how flexible the structure is that's in place. And if the goals are shared between a city manager and a mayor, then you can go incredibly far and you've got this sort of stable infrastructure that continues. So the city manager stays in place. The staff turnover, especially at senior levels, is a lot less when you have some of that stable infrastructure that brings continuity into governance. But then Again, you don't have people who can make these sort of like very quick, rapid, bold decisions that can be transformative in short periods of time because you have this kind of more prolific, entrenched bureaucracy. But And I, I say bureaucracy with a ton of love in my tone uh, because I'm a lover of the bureaucracy and I think that they can get a lot done. Um, and I think that ultimately when you make those changes in that sort of stable bureaucracy, they tend to last longer. Uh, they tend to um, have more sustained success because you've got true professionals who are doing the deployment. I am torn. I have seen some really great strong mayors and I've seen some really great city managers. Um, I think it's really just about are you actually using all the levers? Are you producing those levers? And are you encouraging a public sector workforce to actually um, be bold and do bold things to bring better services for people? If you could wave a magic wand (laughs) looking at the city of Baltimore and our current structure of a very strong mayor structure, arguably constitutionally one of the stronger mayoral structures in, in, the, in the country. Should it change? It's, it's such a vulnerable question right now because we've had such a tough go of it recently. I think there's something really appealing about having someone who could quickly come into office and do transformative things for our city, which we need. And so by saying we want to dilute that in some way, it depends on how deep your bench is. Because when you think about a dilution, it means that you need to have a very deep bench of people who are committed, lifelong public sector workers who are deeply knowledgeable, bring about entrenched subject matter expertise, and are willing in the long run to create sustained change. And I fear that when we eliminate or if we eliminate like that ability to come in with a real strong leader who can make these bold choices, that when we go to that dilution, we don't have a bench that's significantly deep enough to meet the real challenges that we have as a city. And so we wouldn't be able to rapidly make a lot of the changes like um, we've seen. And and honestly, you know, that we do have a little bit of that bench, but I think that it needs to be much deeper in Baltimore. And we don't do a great job at encouraging it. So, you know, can you name the sort of top 10 public sector employees in the city of Baltimore who are continuously nourishing us with innovative ideas? I can name a handful, but I don't know necessarily how long they've been there and how long they'll stay. And that is a risk. 
it also seems like the risk is that it's not something that could be done effectively unilaterally. The level of state involvement, the level of, in some ways, federal involvement, like it's it's not something that could happen smoothly if this was exclusively a conversation about Baltimore and of Baltimore. And nor should it, because I think it's important for the state and everyone else to understand just how important Baltimore is to the state of Maryland, how important Baltimore is to our national narrative. Like, this city means something. Certainly means something to me, that's for sure. I mean, I love the city. One of the things that keeps me up at night is the fact that there's such a discord between the city and the state right now. And it feels like there's a divestment that's happened over the course of the last several years. Emotional, and, economic, psychological, yeah. practical. Absolutely. And that divestment, it's going to take a long time for us to get back to a place where there's trust in the relationship between Annapolis and Baltimore. And that is hard. It's a hard situation to be in. And I think that it doesn't matter whether you have a strong mayor or a weak mayor. But the fact of the matter is, is that our transportation system in Baltimore is so challenged. We are perpetrating some of the worst things that we can perpetrate on poor people by keeping them disconnected. Mm-hmm. We are doing some of our worst interoperability work when it comes to criminal justice in our city. And these, in my opinion, are data issues. You know, we need to be interoperating hand in hand. You know, you cannot drive down violent crime in Baltimore City without a strong strategy between the police and parole and probation and the courts. And these are not systems that are owned by Baltimore City exclusively. And you can have the strongest or the weakest mayor in play. That will not change unless you get some agreement that there has to be a strategy, that we all agree to it, and that we're moving the city forward. And without those stakeholders... It just doesn't work. And the same thing goes for social services and for the schools and for kids. You know, you talk about DJS, you talk about Department of Social Services, the great work that Tisha's leading now in the city. You cannot do this work in a vacuum without the resources. And, you know, that's why these big federal block grant programs go to the state, because there were assurances made that they will be deployed to the places where we're most in need. And if there's not interoperability at the data level, then it's unclear whether or not that's actually happening. I've been speaking with Beth Blauer, who's the executive director and the founder of the Center for Government Excellence at the Johns Hopkins University, also known as GovX. She ran Maryland's former state stat program and has designed and launched Socrata's online platform of federal, state, and local governments, GovStat. Beth, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So before we take off, as always, I just want to leave you with a few thoughts. As we're all talking about the upcoming elections, it seems to be the one conversation that's coming up amongst all of us. Uh, The one topic that could be included in that is this conversation around charter amendments and adjustments to the charter amendments. So as we're getting ready to head to the polls, we know this might not just be about the leaders we're selecting, but in some cases, it could be about our governmental structures. All of us, myself included, could be asked to not just to answer the question of who will lead us, but also what type of city government and structure do we want to be led by and what type of government and city structure do we want to have waiting for the elected officials that we're going to vote in. And as I think you have heard today, there are a variety of options and a variety of opinions. But let's not forget what got us into the challenge we are facing now in the first place and what was going to be necessary to help us get us out.
Charter amendments might help to speed up a process to remove someone who is no longer capable or deserving to lead. But only we can make sure that people like that don't get into the positions they have in the first place. Charter amendments might be able to decide layers of accountability, but we're the only ones that any leader should ultimately be accountable to. It's our dollars, our tax dollars. We pay their salary, we pay their staff, we fuel their vision. Any change or proposed change to weaken a role or weaken a position should not be a fundamental weakening of our understanding of our role in being the driving force and the ultimate deciders of how we should live our lives. Our future city is built by our everyday engagement and our all-encompassing citizenship. And it will always be so. Future City is produced and edited by Mark Gunnery. We welcome your feedback. Also, feel free to contact me directly on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram at I am Westmore. If you want to learn more about some of the people and organizations we heard from today, or if you want to listen to previous episodes, please visit WYPR.org and look for Future City under the Programs and Features tab. Thanks to WYPR intern James Burroughs of Baltimore Lab School for providing original music for this episode. Future City airs here on WYPR on the third Wednesday of each month at 1 p.m. and then again at 9 p.m. So until next time, for 88.1 WYPR, your NPR news station, I'm Westmore. Future City is sponsored by grants from Josh and Janine Fiddler and the Baltimore Community Foundation.